Brethren, I invite you to turn in your copies of the Scripture to Colossians chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first ten verses today as our text, Colossians chapter 2, as we progress through this book. Uh, In God's providences, the next section deals with uh, circumcision and baptism. Uh, And next week, we will have a baptism. Uh, Amelia Hobson will be baptized. And so by God's providential uh, constructs, we're going to have a passage that actually speaks on baptism in the progression of our study. So uh, it's, I like to point out those providential constructs when they happen like that. It gives us uh, comfort that God's handiwork is even in the small details as well as the great. All right, our, our passage today, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'll be reading the first 10 verses. Hear once again the very words of God. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And you therefore have received Christ, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we once again look into this epistle that Paul wrote to the Colossian church, we pray that you would give us insight as to his concern for that church and consequently for the whole church, uh, that we not be deceived by philosophies of men, but rather, Father, that we would hold tight with both hands to the truths found in your word that are contained wholly in the person of Jesus Christ who died on, our, on the cross to, to forgive our sins and who rose from the dead the third day to justify us in your sight that we might be called the children of God. Father, help us not to waver from that steadfast rock, the chief cornerstone of the church and of our faith, Help us to embrace Him all the more, having read the Word, having been taught by the apostles, that we might be faithful to do the work of His kingdom. And we ask this in His name. Amen. Well, brethren, uh, my wife graciously said to me last week, Chuck, your sermons seem to be saying the same thing over and over again recently. Well, unfortunately... Part of that's because of the texts are saying the same thing over and over. So I had to be faithful to the text, but I understand what she was saying. So today, 
that fortunately we have a diversion from some of that. There is still this notion of the mystery of God that Paul talks about in chapter 1 is mentioned again here in the beginning of chapter 2. But Paul also speaks about his being away from this church, never having visited, and yet has great concern for them, as well as the church in Laodicea. I'm going to comment on that in a moment. So these things are similar to what we find in the first chapter. But he he does deal with a warning here that he has not given previously, and that is the warning not to be drawn away from the faith by the philosophies of men, by men's ideas, by the things of the world. And this is a common theme throughout the Scriptures. The Apostle John takes great care to deal with this in his first epistle. Uh, Peter speaks about it. We're going to look at both of those apostles mentioning these same kinds of problems uh, that they they have concern for the church with as well. But keep in mind that the church is still very, very young. First century. Christ has been uh, has ascended some 30 years before, uh, approximately 30 years before this epistle has been written. So it's only been 30 years uh, that Paul is writing to this church, but it's the church is blossoming already. It's a church that was established without Paul's efforts, uh, as was mentioned last week and the previous weeks. And so, but uh, he is writing to them because he has concern over what appears to be a common problem in the church that I believe is common for us today as well. Well, let me comment briefly on the, 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 his concern for not just the church at Colossae, but the church at Laodicea. Um, I'm going to speak more about this when we get to chapter 4. There's only really two places in all of Scripture where we hear about the church at Laodicea. It's in the book of Colossians, where Paul is talking about another church that he did not plant, that he's not had any personal contact with. The only contact he's had with that particular church is an epistle that he wrote to it. But that epistle is not in the canon of Scripture. This is one of what are called the lost epistles. It's spoken of in chapter 4, so when we get there, I'll spend some time on that. But the only other place that we find the church of Laodicea is in the book of Revelation. And it's not a very flattering description of that church. It's a church that's lukewarm, and in the warnings that are given that church by God are, if you don't either become hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I don't want anything to do with a lukewarm church. And so this is a warning, I think, to, the, to us as believers that God is at work in the church and we are supposed to be committed to our faith. And Paul speaks to that in this particular chapter very cogently. Um, today's passage contains two great lessons from our, our Christian faith. The first being the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus in all of life. And so that's a theme that came through chapter 1 as well. The second being the warning against the philosophies of men that endeavor to entice us away from the sufficiency of faith in Christ. All this is couched in a love that Paul expresses for the Colossian church and the church at Laodicea and all other churches that have sprung up outside of Paul's ministry. Now, interestingly, Paul is considered the apostle to the Gentiles, Though Peter would be the first to actually bring the gospel to a Gentile, Paul's whole ministry is to the Gentiles. But he, when he goes to a new city, he often stops first at the, at the uh, synagogue that might be there. 
if he's received at that synagogue, he stays and continues his ministry for a while. Uh, if he's shunned at the synagogue, sometimes he's run out on a rail. Uh, in one case, he's run out, and what's he do? He takes up residence right next door to the synagogue in the book of Acts and continues his ministry to the Gentiles. And, and so this is a, a, a paradigm that's done over and over. But again, this is a situation where Paul's talking to two churches, Colossae and Laodicea, because he's not been there but still has great concern for them. The Apostle Paul is a true shepherd of the church. His perspective is that the church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, and, but is young and susceptible to dangers from without and within. Here, Paul is warning against dangers from without and gives the antidote for avoiding deceivers. He gives an antidote for avoiding deceivers, those who would uh, uh, endeavor to pull Christians away from the, the true faith. Persevering faith in the Lord of glory is the antidote against human philosophies that are deceptive. And I'll talk about how we persevere in the faith in just a few moments. But persevering in the faith is the antidote. Faith that is exercised is faith that endures. Let me say that again. Faith that is exercised is faith that endures. Now, I don't want to draw too many uh, analogies to exercise. Uh, it's a good thing. Uh, Paul in another place says it profits a little. I think that was in one of the epistles to Timothy. Uh, so exercise is a good thing, but in, in this case, I believe Paul is saying exercising your faith is indispensable for warding off those who would deceive you. Exercising your faith is indispensable here. This is Paul's emphasis in our text today. Now the Apostle Peter shared this same concern in his first epistle to the church. Peter's thrust was a bit different, however. His words in chapter 5, verse 8, were more colorful and frightening. Peter wrote, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Be vigilant, he says. That's the exercising of your faith. Be vigilant to do it. Because your adversary the devil is like a roaring lion and he wants to devour you. That's how we ought to perceive those who would deceive us from, into turning from the faith. When we couple Paul's warning in verse 8 of our text with Peter's description of the devil, we see a common concern by the apostles for the young church of Jesus Christ in that first century. The master deceiver from the time of the fall of Adam is just as active today as he has been throughout all recorded history. And he is a roaring lion seeking to devour those who put their faith and trust in God. The nature of deception is that we don't know when we will be targeted. That is the nature of deception. We don't know when we're going to be targeted. Deception is often subtle and sometimes camouflaged. It's not overt always. It's not in your face always, as it was with Eve. She should have known better. Here was a serpent enticing her away from the laws of God. But often, deception is not that way. It's subtle, and it comes at us 
without understanding, us understanding that it's coming. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called deception, would it? Isn't that the very nature of deception? To get you to do something that you wouldn't expect you would do? And if you think you might be somehow immune to deception or being being led away from the faith, you are likely a very ripe target for deception. If you think this is beyond you, that you won't be a, a, a particular target, you would be ripe for the very thing you think you're above. Each of us must be vigilant as Peter admonishes us. We must not drop our guard at any point. The evil one wants to pull us away from true faith, wants to pull us away from our Savior, and we have to be vigilant. We must understand that we are always in the crosshairs of the enemy. This is, it, this is part of the humility God calls upon each one of us to exhibit. We have to acknowledge that we are targets. Now, you've you got to be careful here too. Just because you're a target doesn't mean you're great. The evil one will take the low-hanging fruit from the tree as well, meaning those who are easily deceived. He will go after them as well. Seldom will he go after the trunk, but if he does go after somebody that's a, a, a stalwart in the Christian faith, if he wins, he wins big. It's like hitting the home run. But he'll take a single if he can take it. And each one of us is susceptible. So we've got to be careful. This is part of being humble before God. And God calls each of us to that kind of humility. Are the proud and haughty those whom God gives success? No. Is it not the humble he lifts up? Those who say, I'm weak, I need help. God, give me strength to endure. Give me wisdom to discern who the deceivers are and how I might fall to deception. Therefore, we must acknowledge our sinful weakness and mortify those sinful desires in the flesh that we might thwart the deceptions of the evil one. Well, before we go into more detail in some of these verses, I want to focus our attention briefly on the notion of perseverance in our faith because this is going to be the antidote that Paul talks about in in warding off the possibilities of deception in our life. And our confession has a whole chapter on perseverance. So I want us to take a look at chapter 17, or at least two, two paragraphs in chapter 17 of the confession, Westminster Confession of Faith. And I'll read those for you because I'm sure you don't have them right at hand unless you've already pulled them up on your phone. Some of you may have. I, I want to look at paragraphs 1 and 3. And so let me read paragraph 1 to you. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by the Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. This is what we call the perseverance of the saints. Now, if you come from a Baptist culture or often a congregational culture where independent churches, sometimes you'll hear uh, uh, the phrase eternal security. This is a description of the same thing, I think. Though our confession teaches us a little bit different 
term, uses a little bit different terminology than uh, some modern theologians. Suffice it to say, in, chap- in paragraph one of the confession here, in chapter 17, the divines are telling us that if you are part of the elect, you cannot lose your salvation. And we acknowledge that God holds us in His hand. This isn't something we ourselves are able to, to accomplish. We don't have the will or the ability to save ourselves, no. Nor do we have the will or the ability to stay faithful to God in all things. We've already confessed our sins today, haven't we, in our, in our worship? Out of necessity, we break covenant every week with God. Is there, any, is there any day that we don't break covenant with God? Where our thoughts go where they ought not to go? Where our words go where they ought not to go? Where our desires go where they ought not to go? Every day we break covenant with God and so we have to, we have to come back to Him be, to be restored over and over again. And then in, cha- in that same chapter in the Westminster Confession, paragraph 3, I've skipped a paragraph. You can go back home this afternoon and read paragraph 2 so you have a, the whole context. But for today's purposes, here, paragraph 3. Nevertheless, now this is speaking of the elect that are first referenced in paragraph 1, the elect unto salvation. Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, and have their hearts hardened, and their consciences wounded, hurt, and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Even though you're part of the elect, you can fall into sin. Grievous sin that can last for a long time. Now I have shared with you uh, a dear friend of mine who did just that, a pastor friend of mine, David, who many years ago was unfaithful to his wife, was counseling a woman in his church, was alone with her, She had looked to him for not only wisdom, but comfort. And in that time, uh, they committed adultery with one another. And uh, he fell from the graces of God and was not repentant for many, many years. Approximately four years. He has since repented. He has left that woman. He's gone back to his former wife. And God is restoring that circumstance. But notice what is described here. Fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit. Come to be deprived of some measure of their their graces and comforts. Have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Just by way of warning, brethren, he suffered all those things. Twice was in, once in an automobile accident, once in a motorcycle accident. Basically lost the use of one of his knees. It was crushed in the motorcycle accident. He filed bankruptcy because he couldn't keep a job, because he wasn't healthy. 
And this things like this happened to him over and over again while he was in this circumstance of sin. He was enticed away. He was deceived by the one who went after a tree, not just a low-hanging branch. This was a man who was pastoring a church in our presbytery. But that man repented and has been restored in the church. In this portion of the confession, our forefathers in the faith, as well as the apostles in the first century, acknowledge the weaknesses we have as sinners, though we are redeemed people. We are weak, though we are redeemed. And this places you and me in a perplexing circumstance. Our forefathers are teaching us that we have innate weaknesses that can be exploited. How can we be preserved from falling into grievous sin like my friend David? And what must we do to persevere? Well, before we go back to our text, I want to look at one more passage from another apostle. The Apostle John in chapter 4 of his first epistle. Because he states something there that's indispensable for us to understand how to embrace the antidote for being so that we're not tempted to fall away in sin. In John, 1 John 4 4, we read, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, them being the world, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is an indispensable fact if you want to understand the antidote for being tempted to fall away. You are a child of God. And greater is he who is in you than that roaring lion who who travels about seeking whom he may devour. Now, he may target you, that roaring lion, but there's one who's greater in you than who is in the world. The child of God does not just hold a title. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. His Spirit, the Bible states, bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, and if so, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible talks about who we are. This is who you are if you've placed your faith in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ. What does Jesus possess that we too possess as joint heirs? What does He possess that we also possess as joint heirs? Well, among many things, and there are many things, the list is plethora. I'm not going to go through them all. But one of the things that we have is the power over sin and death. We now have that power. Prior to salvation and regeneration, you have no power over sin and death. That once you're redeemed and been regenerated, you have power over both. They are vanquished enemies, according to Jesus Christ. Along with Satan and his minions, they are vanquished enemies as well. Christ vanquished Satan on the cross. Satan thought for three days that he had it all. 
And then Jesus rose again. And Satan realized it's futile. What I do is futile. Probably made him all the more angry, right? He'd done, he'd done this great work. He'd brought about the death of the Savior of the world, but now he's alive again. I can imagine Satan did not like that at all. And, of course, we see great persecution of the church in its early days. But those are vanquished enemies. Oh, yes, they still endeavored to thwart the advancement of God's kingdom, but they do so in vain. Sin and death, those great weapons of Satan and his minions, they won't vanquish us. We have vanquished them in Christ Jesus. And in our text today, Paul is reminding us that the exercising of our faith is an antidote against falling away in verses 6 and 7. Read with me. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Verse 6. As you have received him, walk in him. (laughs) Now these are metaphorical terms. How do you walk in Jesus? It's not like you're in his bloodstream or anything like that. That's not what's being said. Walk in the power of Christ. That's what he's saying. The power of Christ is we do not have to yield to sin and death any longer. Now, our bodies will yield to death, right? We all know that. We've had a a, a report today just of the death of a man yesterday, a middle-aged man who has a family, who's a believer in Christ. He's now in the nearer presence of our Savior. We have great joy understanding that, but he leaves behind a family who has great needs. We'll be praying for them in a few moments. But you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Remember that Paul has not met the Colossians as part of his ministry, but he knows by way of their testimony and that of Epaphras in in the first chapter. Remember, Epaphras is with him, having come from there to report on the church. He knows of their genuine faith. And he's saying, don't give up on it. Walk in it. That is the antidote. Now, it may seem like, eh, it doesn't seem like much of an antidote, Chuck. Bear with me. It is a genuine faith. Paul is commending a genuine faith. And he wants them to persevere without being deceived. His admonition is to walk in Christ. Walk in Jesus Christ now that you have received him. Now I want to give you what is called, this is the concordant literal translation of verses 6 and 7. This is... uh, I have a little program on my computer. I'm able to pull up this literal translation. It gives you the Greek and an interlinear uh, circumstance. So this is how it reads most literally, verses 6 and 7. As then you accepted Christ Jesus the Lord, be walking in Him, having been rooted and being built up in Him and being confirmed in the faith according as you were taught, Super abounding in it with thanksgiving. Super abounding in it with thanksgiving. We never see those words in our English translation. Super abounding. That almost seems like uh, 
uh, what would you say, just kind of um, trite language. But that's the emphasis that Paul was giving it, superabounding in him. Walking in our faith means to be superabounding in it as we are rooted in Christ and being built up in him. The exercising of faith leaves no time to be deceived by philosophies of men. All gods demand worship and obedience, both the true God and false gods. And when our commitment is focused on the true God, we are very unlikely to be deceived by false gods. That's why God warns us so many times against idolatry. If you want to spend time doing that, guess what? You're going to follow after that God. Follow after me. Do what I want you to do. Do you see now how it's an antidote against being deceived? Practicing your faith day by day, faithfully in all things, not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers, not letting your mind wander into places it ought not to go. All of those things are things God has told us. Walk in them and do so with diligence, superabounding in those things. We have no time to devote to another God when we're superabounding in our own faith. It is when our attention wanes from the true God that we are susceptible to deception. Our diligence has to be in what God teaches us to walk in. And that's what Paul is saying here. Walk in these things. Peter said, be vigilant in these things. That's where we're to be. And this, brethren, is the summation of what Paul has written for our benefit in today's message. There is an antidote for deception by men and Satan, and that antidote is persevering, superabounding in the true faith. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, abiding in Christ, and he in us, and exercising faith as he's given it to us. How then do we exercise our faith? How do we superabound in these things? You've heard it here before at Trinity, and you shall hear it over and over and over again, because this is the commitment of your elders. We are to remain steadfast in the ordinary means of grace. The apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, All of these means have the definite article preceding them in the Greek in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The definite article. The apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The definite article appears before each of them. This is extra emphasis for our understanding. This is intentional by God. These are important items. It's as if he's underlining them or or passing over them with a yellow highlighter. The apostles' doctrine. The fellowship of God's people. The breaking of bread and the prayers. Steadfast. You're to remain steadfast in these things. Does that sound like being vigilant, as Peter said? Does that sound like superabounding in the faith, as Paul writes here? The exercising of our faith is not burdensome, brothers, sisters. It is not beyond our reach. The scriptures which contain the apostles' doctrine, 
the fellowship of God's people, the breaking of bread, which is a reference to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and the prayers are well within the reach of God's people. And frankly, I'm preaching to the choir. It's the people who don't come on a regular basis that are, aren't abounding in these things. All right? So, and I try to remind us of the necessity of that. It is the neglect of these important exercises that opens one up to being deceived. Because you lose sight of who Christ is and what He's done on our behalf. Greater is He that is in us than He who is in the world. If if your eyes aren't fixed on that, that's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these other things will be added unto you. Keep your focus and your eyesight on the one who brought salvation to the world. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Embrace him with both arms, holding tightly to him. And keep doing the means of grace. And you will abound. Notice how Paul describes that. He describes it uh, as being... um, Now I've lost my place. I apologize. Verse 2. That in their hearts they may be encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and Christ, in whom are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We don't have to go after man's philosophies. All wisdom and knowledge are contained in Christ. And then at the end, the very last two verses... For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. You see, Jesus has overcome everything. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. God's people, when immersed in God's graces, the ordinary beings of grace, then become having been immersed in those graces, become able to throw off the temptations of worldly philosophies. When we couple the ordinary means of grace with Paul's admonition to superabound in the faith, we must necessarily conclude that we are to immerse ourselves in the ordinary means of grace, devoting much time to the Scriptures, the fellowship of the brethren, attending the sacraments, as often as possible, and making prayer a lifelong devotion. These are the things that God gives us, and they seem to be impotent in large measure, but they are not. These are the things God gives us to fight Satan, both in our lives and in the lives of the church corporate. These are the things that we have to do if we really want to see the kingdom of God advanced. And this is a lesson we need to learn over and over again. Paul is saying, you have this great faith. That's what he's telling the Colossian churches. Super abound in it. Don't lose sight of what you have. Stay there. Don't be deceived by others. Stay there. And you will see the increase of the kingdom. You will see the glories of God, and you will participate as joint heirs with Jesus Christ.
Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for our text today and we thank you for Paul's concern as well as that of the Apostle John and the Apostle Peter for the church that we are susceptible as sinners to being led away. We thank you for the instruction that we have gotten from the Westminster Divines. That even though we at times are led away from these wonderful graces you've bestowed upon us, we can turn from sin and death and turn back to you and receive the great forgiveness that you've given us in our regeneration and enjoy your blessings again. Father, help your people to not turn away. Help us to learn to be satisfied in your ordinary means of grace in our lives. To encourage us day by day to do your work. To do the work you've given our hands to do. To be a witness to our co-workers, our neighbors, our extended family members. Help us to be those people, Lord. Help us not to despise the good gifts of God, but rather to learn to love them as Paul loved them.